on the brain. Um, it's a wonderful book if you've never read it, by the way. Uh, just pointing that out, book of um, Exodus. But we're actually in the book of Esther, chapter 2. And for the benefit of those that um, were not here when we started the series, we're going to be looking at the doctrine of God's providence in the book of Esther. One of the reasons why we're doing that is because um, Christians uh, in our modern day need to be aware of God's providence in their life. Uh, that used to be actually a common word uh, for Christians to use, providence. Um, at the church that I came from, uh, I remember they had an event um, afterwards, and they didn't call it uh, potluck, they call it pot providence. Um, and, and the reason for that is providence is uh, a part of the Christian doctrine that we've forgotten. We don't use that word, and when we use it, we don't fully understand it. But oh, that every Christian would be fully aware of the work of Christ in their life at all times. And one of the reasons why it's good to remind ourselves of that is we will experience various aspects of God's providence, and we need to be aware of that. And that's what we're going to be looking at in the book of Esther. Esther chapter 2. Also want to say that afterwards we'll, we'll have um, sort of a service luncheon for those of you that have been coming to CVPC for a while. Um, if you want to know how you can get involved, college students or regular attenders that are college students or other, uh, we'll meet downstairs and we'll have a luncheon and then we'll pass out information about different ways that you can get involved in a life of CVPC if you're not already involved in a life of CVPC. All right, Esther chapter 2, verse 1 through 18. Hear now the reading of God's word. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what he had done and what had, what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa the citadel, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young woman, woman uh, who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shemai, son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is, Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict was proclaimed, and when young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in the custody of Haggai, who was in charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, 
and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go in to King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations of women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women. When the young woman went in to the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go in to the king again unless the king delighted at her and was uh, summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go in to the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gives gifts with royal generosity. Well, all flesh is as grass, and the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord shall endure forever. And this is the word that will be taught unto you. Amen and amen. Well, let's go to our Lord in prayer. Our Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this is your word, and these are your people. I pray that you might cement the word into their hearts. May their minds and their hearts be transformed by the power of the gospel. And may they know that they have heard from you, Jesus. And now we humbly pray that what we know not, you may teach us. What we have not, you may give us. And what we are not, you might make us. By the power of your Holy Spirit. And for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen and amen. Well, this morning we're going to be looking at the mysterious providence of God. And you might be sitting there wondering, what do we mean by the mysterious providence of God? It simply means that um, there are some things that happen to us that are, well, mysterious. In fact, just this morning, something mysterious happened. On my drive uh, here... Um, I was in the car with my two sons, and as we were driving down, we had come out of our um, subdivision, and we hit, uh, what is it, 193? I am awful with roads, but whatever that major, is it 193? Some of you are shaking your heads. Yeah, so we were at 193. And my son said, Dad, I can't believe this. I left my Bible on the car. And so I looked around, and his Bible 
was on the car. And this was the Bible that his mother had bought for him. Now, some of you are looking at me and saying, Dennis, that's not that fantastic. Well, you ask my wife, the way I drive, that's a miracle, okay? <laughs> that is a bona fide miracle. In fact, none of the pages, the stuff that he had stuck in there were lost at all. We couldn't believe it. Now, that's an example of mysterious providence. Now, again, that's a, a, perhaps even just a playful or silly reality, the fact that the Bible stuck on there as I was careening around corners and going down hills and, and trying to make it at breakneck speed, the church. But, but in the providence of God, he did not lose his Bible. And things like that happen all the time. You know what's interesting to me? I love watching people paint because as they begin to paint, you, you see a stroke here and a stroke there. And you're wondering to yourself, what are they painting? And you have no idea what they're painting because what they're painting is in their mind. It's mysterious to you. You have, you have no idea what's going on. There are all sorts of things like that that happen in our life. Now, the reason why I bring all of this up is because when you read Esther chapter 1 and 2, we see a whole bunch of mysterious providences. We see all sorts of strokes by Jesus Christ uh, uh, and God the Father. We, we see all sorts of things happening that just seem mysterious to us. For instance, we, we mate a foolish king who rules by pleasure and his passion. And then we meet a king who gets into a rage because his wife doesn't want to meet his expectations that are incredibly unreasonable. And so in a fit of rage, he divorces her in the most public and humiliating way possible, and he banishes her uh, for, forever from his presence. And then in chapter 2, we, we get this regretful king. Scholars tell us that uh, this king probably had just, as it says, after these things, he had just probably lost a military battle, and he comes back after several years, and he remembers uh, his uh, queen Vashti, and he's regretful. And then instead of maybe looking for his wife and apologizing, what do we have? We have this king that decides that he wants beautiful virgins. And then we get this whole business about a, about a beauty contest and, and, and spa treatments. And, and then we get the harem and we're wondering, what is God up to? This all seems very mysterious. Now, I, again, I mention this because you and I probably have various things in our life that seem mysterious to us. Maybe things that you're going through currently that seem very strange. And you're trying to figure out, God, what are you doing? Why, why is it that these things are happening to me and the way that they're happening to me? Well, I think this passage offers us three important truths to understand God's mysterious providence. And again, I'm not giving you pat answers here. God's mysterious providence is just that. It's mysterious. But, but what I want to do is provide you with some helpful things. That whether you are a, a young Christian just starting out or an older saint, uh, these three things will help you understand when things are going on in your life, perhaps what God is doing. And here are they, or here they are. First of all, we don't always get to choose our circumstances. 
That's point number one. We always don't get to choose our circumstances. Point number two, we don't always understand what's happening, nor do we need to. And point number three, God's gracious hand is always present, and so we should trust him and be faithful. Trust him and be faithful. All three of them are in this passage. First of all, we don't always get to choose our circumstances. Now, my, my uh, elementary school English teacher would be proud of me because I get to stand up to a group of people and talk about the active and passive verb. Uh, she, she thought my, my time sleeping, I wasn't paying attention. But Miss Lightborn, I was, if you're watching this, right? Now, in this passage, if you notice, there are a whole bunch of passive verbs. In fact, it's one of the features of the book of Esther. If you're looking for a Bible study, by the way, you can read through the book of Esther, and they're everywhere. But I'll just point out a few to you. Notice verse number 5 and 6. It says that uh, Mordecai was carried, and, and his people um, were carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah. And then again, in verse, uh, this, that was verse number six, whom Nebuchadnezzar uh, of Babylon had carried away. And then if you look at verse number eight, it said that the young women were gathered in Susa, and also Esther was taken. And then if you drop down the verse number 15, it mentions that Mordecai had taken Esther to be his own daughter. All of those are passive words. Now, now here's the, here's, the English question, uh, here's the English lesson. You all know that if, if the verb is active, you're performing the action. But if the verb is passive, the action is being performed on you. And, and Karen Jobes, uh, a scholar of Esther, I think hits the nail on the head when she said, that these passages suggest that the characters are being caught up by unforeseen forces that are ultimately in control of their lives. Isn't that beautiful? That even though Nebuchadnezzar carried the people away, and even though um, King Ahasuerus grabbed these young women to be uh, in the harem, that God was working concurrently with those actions for his ultimate purposes. That's, that's the gospel. That's what's happening here in this passage. Karen Jobes is absolutely right when she said that, that perhaps none of them chose these actions. But yet God was working concurrently in those actions. Nobody chooses exile. Nobody chooses to be lopped up and put in a harem. And perhaps if you look at your life, there is all sorts of things you can say, Pastor Dennis, I didn't choose to happen. I look at my own life and I said, I, I wouldn't have chosen to have chronic asthma. It's not fun getting up in the middle of the night and you can't breathe. You have to be insane to choose that. Just like I didn't choose for my father to die at six years old. Anyone that grew up without a father knows that you lose a lot. There are some of you inside here today who wouldn't have chosen your chronic pain. 
your chronic anxiety, all of your mental health issues or physical issues. You wouldn't have chosen the abuse that happened in your life. There's all sorts of things that happen to us that we wouldn't have chosen. And yet, in the providence and wisdom of God, he allowed it to happen for your good and his glory. John Flavel, who is a Puritan, in his book, The Mystery of Providence, I think explains it better than I could. And here's what Flavel says. Uh, Just the first line alone. He says, providence is wiser than you. Do you believe that? Providence is wiser than you. And you may be confident it has suited all things better to your eternal good than you could do had you been left to your own options. Notice what Flavel is saying, and this is so good. This is so good. Flavel said, if you could go back in your life and you can choose all the things that happened to you, of course, there are so many things you wouldn't have opted in. There are so many things you wouldn't have allowed to happen. Of course, you wouldn't have allowed yourself to do certain things. Of course, you wouldn't have asked for those things to be done. Your life would have looked completely different, Flavel said, if you had a choice. But here's the point that Flavel is making. The life that you want for yourself and you would have imagined for yourself is not the life that ultimately pleases the Lord. Now listen, let me stop for a moment and say this. At the point that you could understand that is the point that you begin to grow as a Christian. Some of us get so bogged down in the circumstances of our life and we get bitter at God and bitter at other people. We complain and we lay sullen. But the moment you begin to realize this profound truth that there's so many things that happen in our life that we didn't choose, both good and bad, so many situations that we currently find ourselves that we would have done a little bit differently, at the moment you realize that your reality right now brings more glory to God than had you chosen your own reality is the point that you begin to grow as a Christian. These things are happening for your good. There's a beautiful story, um, uh, a former saint that I know, I still know them, but they, they told this, this beautiful story one time, and it's, it's with her and her son. She said, uh, foolishly, one day she parked, uh, she went to McDonald's, and she parked in front of the playground. Uh, that's on the inside, you know, and it's, and it's glass around it. And her son came out, and immediately her son wanted to run to the playground. And she said, no, no, honey, you can't run to the playground. There's glass there. But he didn't understand that. He was maybe two. They don't understand English then. And so, so she's trying to explain to him. And, and he's fighting her and grabbing and holding on to the branches. And she said it was quite the spectacle. And he, she, find, she keeps telling him, like, no, no, honey, listen. I, I'm going to take you to the playground. I'm going to take you where you need to go. But I need to go around the glass inside and then take you in the playground. And and by this time, you know, people are watching her and they're getting ready to call the police because it looks like she's trying to kill her son and and just grab him away from the thing. And so finally she just grabs him away 
and she runs as fast as she can, and she takes him on the inside and says, see, here's the playground. And he's happy, and he goes running to the playground. You know, some of us are like that. If we were honest, we were just like that. We see where we want to go, and man, we want to run to it. And we don't understand that there's glass in the way. And we fight, and we kick, and we scream, because all we want is the playground. And God is saying, no, 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 no. I have to take you around those things. I have to take you down a different pathway in order to get to where you want to go. You see, um, if you've lived the Christian life long enough, you begin to understand that, that there are a lot of things that you would have never chosen, but in the wisdom of God, God allowed to happen because he's trying to take you somewhere. He's trying to give you what you want. It's just that you have to go at it a different way. You, you know, the message of the gospel is God is trying to sanctify you all in a very specific way. And if you allow him to, if you allow him to just carry you where you need to go, you will end up where you think you should be. And it's a glorious reminder to all of us that, yes, there are some things that we wouldn't have chosen. But in the providence, in the mysterious providence of God. We had to experience those things in order for God to shape us and fashion us in the way we should be. That's, that's a glorious reality. Now, it's not easy. I'm not standing up here telling you that all the things you've experienced are lovely and wonderful and good. Of course not. But do you have enough faith to believe that God's way is far greater than your way? And here's the second thing I want to say quickly, and it's this. We don't always understand what's happening. You know, this passage is challenging to us because um, as we look at this passage, now, if you didn't understand the rest of the book, if you hadn't read Esther and you were just reading Esther for the first time, you would look at this and you would be completely shocked. And if I told you that God is at work in the book of Esther, you would have said, no way. Why? Because we're conditioned, we've been conditioned, and we've conditioned ourselves to look at the book of, say, Exodus and say, yes, yes, God is at work in Exodus, right? We see plagues. We see pillar of fire. We see God speaking. We know God is at work in Exodus. Or we read the book of Acts, and we see, oh, God is at work in the book of Acts, right? Tongues of fire. Miracles, preaching, all of these things. We, we've conditioned ourselves to think this way. But, but when we look at Esther and we see, uh, uh, you know, we, we see um, a beauty pageant and, and we see all this talk about being beautified and we see all this talk about the harem, we're not conditioned to think this is God at work as well. We're not conditioned to think that. You, in fact, I, I have one for you. When you go home, Look up VeggieTales retelling of Esther. Or, or, or look up any kid's um, re rendition of Esther. You know, Esther was this beautiful girl that, 
that goes into the palace and, and she sings for the king and, and the king chooses her and yay. Like, look, I, you know, I, I laughed and I said, look, this isn't Disney. This is more film noir. But we've so conditioned ourselves, and it starts with our children when they're young. We tell them life is beautiful, the world is Disney, and if you do everything right, then everything should work out. But the book of Esther is not like that. I don't want to get into the gory details of what's happening here, but I can assure you this is not Disney. These young women were taken and they had to perform sexually for the king. And in the midst of reading this, you're wondering, God, what are you doing? Why are you putting a godly young woman like Esther? Why are you putting her and subjecting her to this? Now, I'll get back to that in a moment, but that's, that's a fair question. Derek Thomas, my systematic professor, he did a lecture one time on the book of Esther, and I think his comments here is helpful. He said this. He said, God needed Ezra, the priest in Jerusalem, to help restore religious worship when the temple was being built. Then he said, God needed Nehemiah, the cupbearer, to restore the walls to protect the people in Jerusalem. And in the same way, God needed Esther, the virgin girl, in the palace of Susa to save his people. That's beyond our understanding. A priest, a community organizer, and a socialite. God used the beauty treatments, the harem, and her looks to get her exactly where she needed to be in order to bring him glory. That's some mysterious providence. And what do we say in the face of this mysterious providence? Well, God tells us what we should believe in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. For my ways are not your ways, or your, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as, high are the, uh, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. As high as the heavens are, so high is my thoughts. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. You know what's interesting? I, I spend quite some time listening to atheists and people who have deconstructed their faith. And, and the one theme that keeps coming up over and over again is they mock the fact that, that they can't understand what God is doing. Now they say that's foolishness that God would do things like that. It doesn't make any sense that God would send his son. Why would he do it in the form of a, to a virgin? And why would he permit cosmic child abuse? You know, all the things that people typically say. And they call us foolish because we believe them. And you wonder to yourself, well, well what, what do we answer to that? What, what, what do we say to the atheist or the skeptic who, who mock us for believing things like this? I think um, Agar, who wrote Proverbs 30, hit the nail on the head in verse number 18 and 19. He said, 
there are three things too wonderful for me, four I do not understand. And the very last one, he says, the way of a man with a virgin. And here's what he's saying. He's saying if we can't understand love, a young man when he meets a beautiful young woman, and why he's so raptured by her, if we can't understand that, what makes us believe we could understand the mind of God? If I could say it a little bit differently, if we can't understand the finite, why would we think we can understand the infinite? You know, every now and then I look, I look at young love. Don't you just love young love? I was in a coffee shop several months ago, and I saw this young woman, and she, she was obviously in love with the young man that she was with, and and I mean, she would run in the back and get something for him and ask him if he needed anything. And it was just, ah, oh, it was beautiful. Right? And I said, look at that. I don't understand that. I don't really understand what she saw in him, but that's a separate matter. <laughs> <laughs> strange, strange thing. Yeah, strange thing. I, I know some of you say that about my wife and me, but uh, that's <laughs> another matter all, all set. We don't understand love. There's a whole bunch of things that scientists don't understand. There's, there's a whole bunch of things I don't understand. And yet I stand in judgment of God and what he's doing in my life and in the life of others. You know what astounds me more than anything else is the hubris of mankind. That we think just because we don't understand something, there is no explanation for it. That just because we can't figure things out, then we cannot trust in it. Oh, that's utter nonsense. There's so many things that happen that we don't understand. Now, let me say this. Let me say this quickly. I'm not saying that it's not appropriate to question God. Of course. Of course. Question. Ponder. Look. That's why God gave us a brain, so we could think, and we can question him. Of course, that's what God wants us to do. In fact, doesn't the call of the gospel say, come, let us reason together? Why would God ask us to reason with him if he didn't want us to use our brains? Of course he wants us to use our brains. But he also wants us to understand the glorious truth in Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of his mouth. Beloved, there are many things that you and I don't understand about God, and that's perfectly fine, but there's many things in this book that we can understand him, and the question is, are we doing that? There's so much in this book we can understand and do. Why do we get hung up on the things we can't understand and we can't do. God is doing a lot of things. We don't always understand it and we don't always have to. Last point. God's gracious hand is always present upon us. Now, as we were reading this text, you probably noticed many times that the text said that um, Esther gained favor in the eyes of those around. So notice in verse number 9, it says the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And then in verse number 15 as well, 
it says that, that uh, Esther gained, was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And then in verse number 17, it mentions the fact that she had won grace and favor in the sight of uh, more than all the other virgins. Now, what, what's being spoken of there? Well, if you read through the literature and to the commentaries, they, they all say kind of the same thing. Esther was the one that's winning favor, which means Esther is compromising her Jewish faith. That instead of being like Daniel or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and stood firm, rejected the food, rejected the beauty treatments, rejected all of those things, because, because she didn't do that, she's compromising. Now, what do we say about that? Well, I agree with the commentators to a point, yes. This, this is showing that Esther probably compromised a little bit. But I will say this, that's not the point of the narrative. The point of the narrative isn't that Esther was gaining favor in the eyes of others or that she was compromising. The point of the narrative is to show that Esther had already won favor in the eyes of the Lord. Read, read through the narrative. It was God who made sure Esther was adopted by an uncle of high-ranking status. It was God who created Esther beautiful and lovely to look at. It was God who made sure Esther was chosen among the many women in the kingdom, which, by the way, was incredibly rare. First of all, the kings, the Persian kings, never married outside of the royal class. They certainly wouldn't have married a Jew and someone of poor estate. The fact that Esther was chosen among all these women in and of itself is a miracle. And the fact that God ensured that Esther ended up not as a concubine, but as a wife of a king. If you sat down and you wrote it all out, you'll see God's incredible favor on the life of Esther. And notice that this favor was given to Esther freely. Esther had to work for the favor that she got. But the at least the favor that she got from the people of Persia. Esther had to work for that. But the favor of God, Esther didn't have to work for. That was given to her freely. In some ways, the narrative actually plays a trick on us by saying that Esther gained favor because she worked for it. It's kind of like the Alanis Morissette song, Ironic. You know, and all the examples that she gave wasn't really ironic. For those of you that know the song, that's a little aside. But, but if you look at this passage... It kept saying that Esther gained favor. Look, favor isn't gained through work. Grace isn't gained through work, at least not our work. Esther gained favor and grace in the lives of the Lord because of the work of Christ, the future work of Christ. You say, Pastor, what do you mean? Remember the promise given to Abraham. In you, all the nations will be blessed. Because God made that promise to Abraham, because he laid down that promise for his people, Esther was the recipient of that glorious promise. The reason why God looked down on Esther and chose her is because she was a part of the line of Abraham, the people of faith. And even though Esther may have been in the midst of compromise, 
God looked past her compromise and straight to her heart and saw someone who, in a crunch, would do what he has called us to do. I appeal to Flavel again because he's so good at this. He says this, grace makes the promise and providence the payment. See, the grace is that God would make a covenant with us. And providence is the awesome reality that God ensures that that promise would happen. Uh, A commentator pointed out that it's truly amazing that during the time that Esther lived, Aristotle, Pythagoras, Socrates, and Confucius roamed the earth. That's, that's pretty amazing. And yet, in the providence of God, he chose an orphan girl who was exiled to be immortalized in Scripture and to save his people and change the course of redemptive history. Can you think of anything more glorious than that? There's only two books of the Bible named after a woman, and Esther was one of them. Why? Because of God's grace on her. Brothers brothers and sisters, listen to Paul's uh, saying here, because I think it's so applicable now. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were noble of birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. By the way, that's all of us. All of us are the recipient of God's profound grace. All of us are being used to accomplish God's profound purposes in the world. Each and every one of us inside here today. We may never have the opportunity that Esther has, nor should we desire it. Do you realize that right now you are accomplishing the good and blessed purposes of God in the here and now, flawed and broken as you are? Man, it takes the eyes of faith. It takes an understanding of what Christ is doing in our lives and in the world. Here's the big takeaway for us. Never forget the intersection between divine providence and God's grace. Listen, I I don't know why God made you the way he did. And and I don't know why he allowed you to have the parents you have, to be born where you were born. I don't know why he allowed the experiences that you've had over the years. Some of them I know might be particularly difficult. Some of them might be wonderfully pleasant. I don't know the answer to that. But here's what I do know. In his mysterious providence, his grace shines abundantly to bring about something more beautiful than you and I could ever imagine. And when you realize that, the whole world looks different. It looks different. It's like looking into a 3D picture. Anybody ever saw, you know, the squiggly lines? And you're like, what, what, what am I looking at? And then if you look one specific way, all of a sudden the dinosaur world pops up and you're like, whoa, that's God's providence. That if you look at what God is doing long enough and hard enough, a whole new world opens up to you. And it seems less mysterious. 
and it seems more glorious. Father, we thank you so much that we are often carried along, that we are often left in the dark, but we always are recipient of your grace. Father, thank you that in your glorious providence, you are working in our lives for our good and for your glory. Help that to be um, a sweet comfort to us and a glorious reminder. In Jesus' name, amen.